insert bird quote. What's up, I'm Kenny Big Cat Porter. Hey everyone, I'm Bonnie Porter, and welcome to Nature Dope AF, the show where two siblings and amateur naturalists talk about the incredible world around us. We're recording this in the beginning of June 2020, and we're still in a pandemic, and people are rallying to take a stand against police brutality and racial oppression. As two white people, we're confronting what we can do and how we can show up to be actively anti-racist. We started this podcast mainly because we love nature and each other and wanted to have some fun. Our biggest hope is that we could learn and share more, and this will spurn us and our listeners to care more for our natural environment and do what we can to fight climate change. And ultimately, showing up to fight police brutality and racial violence is integral to climate change work. As the grassroots group Bronx Climate Justice North says on its website, without a focus on correcting injustice, work on climate change addresses only symptoms and not root causes. We're probably going to get things wrong, and a lot of times our opinion, frankly, isn't needed. But we felt like it was important to use this platform, even though I'm sure it's just some of our friends and our family. Hi, Mom, listening. (laughs) As another way to amplify things as they relate to the topics we select. And as it just so happens, our topic is bird migration, and we love birds so much and believe that the joy of birds should be safe and welcoming for all people. And we know it isn't because this week also happens to be Black Birders Week in response to Christian Cooper, a black birder in New York City, being threatened by a white woman in Central Park. I'm going to read a little bit from an article about Black Birders Week. The importance is normalizing the fact that Black people exist in the birding and natural sciences community, says Anna Gifty Apoku Ajiman, one of the organizers of the event. People don't understand that Black people exist in other contexts other than the ones they're supposed to. It's to ensure other people see the impact of Black birders and naturalists and give them a chance to be seen. This visibility is a master key that can open all kinds of doors for Black scientists to succeed and for the world to benefit from their success. Why is there such an internalized stereotype that Black people aren't interested or somehow alien to nature and studies therein? Wildlife biologist Alex Troutman says, in his experience, it's a combination of factors. People growing up in urban areas are exposed to less nature, and the persistent idea that outdoor activities like camping, hiking, and wildlife appreciation are white-dominated pursuits. People assume just because we're Black, we don't like the outdoors, he says. People don't talk about the buffalo soldiers who were among the first to care for national parks. They don't talk about Black ranchers. Troutman has worked with marine endangered species in Corpus Christi, Texas, for the National Park Service and for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, among other roles. All of this experience, and Troutman says people have still occasionally looked at him with doubt. And I think, you know, this is something we just want nature to be safe and accessible to everyone. So we're going to link to this article and to the Black naturalists who are actual experts, unlike us. <laughs> you can follow along with for Black Birders Week and Ask a Black Birder. There's some really great stuff. I saw some amazing pictures on the hashtag and there's a great YouTube channel called Birds of North America hosted by Jason Ward and more. And we'll continue to share diverse perspective in our resources section and future episodes. So on each episode, we pick a topic and share a few interesting tidbits with you. Kenny, will you remind us what dope part of nature we're talking about today? Today, we're talking about animal migrations, the bird edition. (laughs) Woohoo! I was just reading that self-isolation due to the pandemic is turning kids and probably adults into bird watchers. I had back surgery, as you know, but then that is when I became a birder, uh, just casually. (laughs) You know, you and Aunt Shannon sending me bird books 
And then people bought me a lot of bird-related Christmas gifts. So people have really reflected a being a birder onto me. It just... it. <laughs> You can't get away from it now. Like everyone's just going to give you bird stuff from now on. But I turned into a birder because there's a bunch of dope ass birds at my house. Like all kinds of wild birds I've never seen, including the bird that I'm going to talk about today. Hummingbirds. There are never had never had any hummers at my house before, but hummingbirds remember where they travel every year. So I moved here, didn't have any hummingbird feeders up and there was just a very angry hummingbird who kept like dive bombing at my head like sup bro where's my drink so that's why i just became interested in hummingbirds so that's what i'm talking about today and specifically there are many hummingbirds but i specifically am going to talk about the ruby-throated hummingbird which is more common in north america in spring Ruby-throated hummingbirds surge northward into the United States and southern Canada, where they breed during the summer month, which I have now witnessed is very, it's quite the dance. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, well, and as evidenced by you being uncomfortable by ladybug clump, I don't know how that went. I... Uh, didn't know what was happening, but in my research for this podcast, I listened to another podcast about hummingbirds, and as I had seen this outside of my house, because I'm just out there birding 24-7, I was just like, wonder what's going on there. I was like, either they're fighting, Mm. or they're getting down to business. Turned out, they were getting down Mm. to business. But they, when they do mate, it's like, okay, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, goodbye. Uh, I got too much shit to do. You're in my way. Yeah. <laughs> Very independent. Mm-hmm. So they move, they surge northward <clears throat> in the spring because they're, they don't like, they don't know if they're chasing like the summer equinox or what, but they surge northward in the spring to, to follow flowers because they are uh, pollinators as well. And they eat bugs. Mm-hmm. The majority when they fly back are headed for Mexico and Central America, although some remain in the southern United States, along the Atlantic and the Gulf Coast. Those that stay in the U.S. are typically migrants from Canada who have already traveled several thousand miles. Populations of ruby-throated hummingbirds are on the rise due to the popularity of backyard feeders and the birds' ability to live in open and forest-edge habitats. Hummingbirds and swifts are able to stroke with power both on the down and the upbeat of wing flap. Their power and small size allow them tremendous agility in flight. In fact, hummingbirds are the only vertebrates capable of sustaining hovering, staying in one place during flight. They can fly backwards, upside down as well. They've been clocked at close to 30 miles an hour in direct flight and more than 45 miles an hour during courtship dives. So when when they're trying to get the ladies going, They go up in the air and they hover down. And, you know, because their wings are what makes their crazy noise, not their throat. Mm -hmm. Very Mm -hmm. interesting. And so you can always Mm -hmm. hear them. And so I go outside and there's one sitting on a chair next to my hummingbird feeder. And then another one just dive bombing it. Then they kind of did a little tango on the ground. Then they flew up into my aspen tree and did the business. (laughs) So... (laughs) You just really uh, emphasize the ass and ass. And I thought you were yeah. going to say something else. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> they were both flying up in that aspen. You know what I'm saying? Come on. <laughs> oh, they're, they're out there getting it. Migratory 
ruby-throated hummingbirds have no problem flying 18 to 20 straight hours across the Gulf of Mexico, powered by their fat stores and given help from the wits. Yeah, How much fat stores do they have? They will gain, they'll try to gain like 25 to 40% of their body weight, and they will fly 18 to 20 straight hours across the Gulf of Mexico, and then they will go into like a light hibernation, rest up, and then go back at it. Filled up our hummingbird feeder, so. Well, see, you know, everybody should have one. But did you know that they also pollinate thousands of plants a day and also eat thousands of bugs because they had captured some hummingbirds and thought they could sustain them solely on the sugar water solution? Turns out you can't. Oh, no. But, I mean, you know, hummingbirds doing the Lord's work, eating all those bugs. (laughs) pollinating all the flowers and they're just so precious they're just so pretty yeah they also like they build their nest out of spider old spider webs it's crazy yeah ultimate recyclers i guess you should google them they're adorable yes everyone google them and we'll have links in our show notes They they look like little quaint, like, you know, how people build those little fairy, you know, things and gardens and stuff. Like doors. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like a real one. They're like, they're made out of spider webs, but they look like they're like covered in moss. Like they're fucking adorable. Oh, hummingbirds. They're so small and their eggs are like the size of peas. Oh, wow. Like, and they're itty bitty. So cute. Holy shit. While I was Googling hummingbird nests so I could give a better description of it, they sell hummingbird swings. What? I have to buy one now. They just sit on it and swing. It was wonderful. Oh, putting the perch on that shit. (laughs) But what's motivating them to swing on it? Like food? Uh, This one says you just put it near a feeder and they'll just like naturally sit on it. Okay. Hmm. All right. Well... What, uh, you know, I could go on about hummingbirds literally all day because uh, they're <laughs> mm-hmm. real neat. But what, mm-hmm. uh, what, what bird are you going to talk about today? Well, I'm going to talk about another bird that we have some personal experience with, and that is the sandhill crane. Um, we used to live in Nebraska as kids, and we would see them out in the fields every year (laughs) and i'm gonna include a link to the sound that they make because it's quite a little crow or caca something yeah if you haven't seen one before they are gray birds and they have a red forehead and these like white cheeks and long dark pointed bills and their height can be anywhere from around three feet to four feet. Every year, 400,000 to 600,000 sandhill cranes, 80% of all the cranes on the planet, which is just oh, mind-boggling, damn. congregate along an 80-mile stretch of the central Platte River in Nebraska to fatten up and hang out in empty cornfields in preparation for the journey to their Arctic and subarctic nesting grounds. This staging is one of the world's great wildlife spectacles on par with epic migrations of wildebeest and caribou, which, spoiler alert, we might be talking about later. (laughs) It takes place in three waves of four to five weeks each, beginning in mid-February and ending in mid-April, during which birds that arrive emaciated from wintering grounds in Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and Chihuahua, Mexico, gain 20% of their body weight. (laughs) 
<laughs> you were talking about like a little dive uh, courtship thing. I don't know called? if I would call it little. They're so small, but they're going like 45 miles an hour. That's insane. Yeah. So hummingbirds are going real fast. Uh, Sandy Hill Crane, for their courtship, it includes an elaborate dance with the birds spreading their wings, leaping in the air while calling. <laughs> their nesting site is among marsh vegetation and shallow water, sometimes up to three feet deep, sometimes on dry ground close to water. The nest is built by both sexes and is a mound of plant material piled up around the site. It can be built from bottom up or it can be floating, anchored to standing plants. One of the things I read said, they are amusingly social birds. They have a wide range of vocalizations, and some experts even believe they are tool users, using sticks and other objects as part of their communication and displays. They're remarkably intelligent and adaptable birds. You really can just spend hours at a time observing them, and they'll keep entertained. While many subpopulations of sandhill cranes have rebounded thanks to aggressive conservation efforts, threats from man-made sources continue to loom large. The Ottawa Society has deemed them a priority bird. I think um, any bird that dances and uses sticks to communicate should be a priority. I would wholeheartedly agree with that. <laughs> It is said that habitat destruction is probably one of the biggest threats that they faced. They require vast sprawling wetlands in order to roost and feed, and these lands are due to a combination of factors that include human development and climate change. For instance, in the southwest U.S., winters have been gradually getting drier, and in the winter, wetlands have been shrinking significantly. In some areas, water must be actually pumped into designated protected areas just to help maintain and preserve their habitats. The steady encroachment of human development is always looming as well. One scientist said that they witnessed large roosts of birds with an eyeshot of coal-fired power plants and manufacturing zones uh, during the filming of this really cool movie that we're also going to link to. So... Again, birds, dope AF, sandhill cranes, very cool. Check out the mating dance and let's do what we can to help these birds have their wetlands <laughs> to hang in. Making them wetlands wet. We're going to wrap things up now with five fast animal facts. Fast animal migration facts, excuse me. What you got? The Arctic tern has the longest migration of any bird in the world. They can fly more than 49,700 miles in a year, making a round trip between their breeding grounds in the Arctic and the Antarctic, where they spend their winters. And over its lifespan of more than 30 years, the flights can add up to the equivalent of three trips to the moon and back. Dang. Like, you're flying that much to go to real, two real shitty places. Like, don't, like... <laughs> The Arctic and Antarctica, like, I'm sure it's cool, but, like, that's your destination? That just seems... I mean, it's like, literally cool for now, <laughs> but... I mean, that's true. Yeah, I don't know. True story. Uh, yeah. I, well, you know, they fly that far, but listen to this. The bar-tailed godwit can fly for nearly 7,000 miles without stopping it, making Damn. it the bird with the longest recorded nonstop flight. During the... They usually... It takes them eight days to fly that far. They don't stop for food or rest. That's so birds. far. Like, jeez. No stopping? That I, It's like, how is that physically possible? It's wild. They're in a hurry to get things done. <laughs> well, they got the award for nonstop flight, but the award for fastest bird goes to the great snipe and not the ones that your friends made you search for in high school. Maybe that's a regional thing, but <laughs> the real snipe flies around 4,200 miles at speeds of up to 60 miles per hour. 
No other animal travels at such speeds for such long distances. So it is the cheetah of the sky. No wonder you can't <laughs> catch them. They're too damn fast. <laughs> yep. Well, the, the title of highest migratory flyer goes to the bar-headed geese, which have been observed migrating at elevations topping 23,000 feet in the Himalayas. I mean, all these facts are just going to show that birds are just unimaginable, like, what they can do. I mean, I live at 8,000 feet, and I suck wind every time I go up the stairs, like, flying around <laughs> 20... Jeez. <laughs> well, unfortunately, migration can be extremely dangerous for birds, and many don't often make it back to their starting point. Sometimes natural occurrences like harsh weather play a role, but many times human activities are the cause of birds' untimely demise. In the United States alone, up to 1 billion birds die each year from window collisions. To learn how you can help minimize collisions and other threats, we've linked to a few different articles. Audubon and American Bird Conservancy have a lot of great resources. Um, I was surprised to learn that window decals really aren't very effective, at, but placing feeders three feet from windows and using white or light colored drapes are highly effective. I'm good on the drapes, but, <laughs> you know, I always thought just slap a some kind of weird decal and it would help, but apparently it's not as good. Now, I can attest to just many dead birds running into my windows, so I get, but my feeders are like three feet away from my windows, but there's no feed mm. in them to keep away the other animals. Can't have I guess them. you're going to have to do a deep dive into that article and see what you can do. <laughs> gonna have to really just get real into drapery. So Yeah, there you go. Thank you so much for joining everyone. Next time, we're going to continue our migration series with mammals. And as always, as we've referenced, check out our show notes for links to the things we talked about in this episode, plus ways to go way more in depth on this fascinating topic like the Cornell Ornithology Lab BirdCast. It's like a weather forecast for bird migration and other ways to help our feathered friends. Keep us posted on what you'd like to hear about and any questions you have. Join us next time for another fun nature chat. Stay safe, everyone. Bye. Bye.